0: Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, like he said, for joining us today uh, and making worship with GFC part of your weekend. We're so glad that you're here or you're watching later, you're connecting later. uh, You're watching online right now, maybe. We're thankful that that you are here. And I do want to say thank you. Uh, Last week, we did something different, right? We didn't gather in this space, we had some opportunities to go and do some different projects. And so a couple of us went up to Brecknock, and some of us went to Blue Ball Elementary, and some of us were here writing cards, and we got the opportunity to paint uh, the playgrounds at the schools, which is really cool. So last year we were able to do New Holland, so now we've been able to provide all the elementary schools in our district with a sensory playground. If you don't know what that is, it's kind of like different games like hopscotch and things like that that kids can play just on a blacktop. So think about, I remember when I was a kid. If, the, if it had been too rainy, it was like too muddy on the playground, you had to go play on the blacktop, and that was good for a time, but there's certain things you need to be able to do or you miss playing in different spaces. So you get a little few different options there. That's what we were able to do for them, and then we were able to write the cards to all the elementary school teachers here, and they will be getting them in their mailboxes this week. So this is a really cool way for us to be able to look at our school districts, at, at district at the beginning of the year and say, hey, we're for you. We want to provide something of value to you, and we want to encourage you. So thank you for those of you who were able to connect in that way and jump on those projects. We are super grateful for that. But... It is also really good to be back with you today and continuing in our conversation on Storyteller. So if you haven't been with us, let me give you kind of a snapshot of where we've been and how we got here. We've been focusing on the book of Luke this year, and so we have a, we've been focusing on the book of Luke, and we've gone through the beginning part of Luke, and we've jumped in and out, done some different things, but we wanted to focus our time specifically on the parables of Jesus now, I just used, I used the word parable, which is a pretty churchy word. So we've asked this question, what are parables? And the simple answer to that, and you can kind of just lock this away in your memory somewhere, is that it's an earthly story with heavenly meaning. And so the way that I've explained it, the way to help us understand it is it is very difficult to learn about something you can't see or hear or or touch or feel or anything like that. Many of us learn with our hands. If we're going to figure out how to do something, we have to physically do it. Or if you need to know how to get somewhere, if you drive there the first time, you'll remember how to do it again. Jesus, many times in scripture, is trying to teach us something or teach his disciples something about the kingdom of God or about a new way of life. And there's not an easy way to tangibly grasp the kingdom of God. So what Jesus does is he takes these stories and he uses things on earth that we would understand. He uses agriculture. He uses relationships. He uses dilemmas. And he says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is how you should understand life moving forward. This is what that looks like. And he actually used stories all the time, 30 to 50 different parables Jesus used as he went, that we know of, that are recorded, there could have been more, that he used throughout his ministry to help his disciples and his followers understand what it means to actually follow him. And so we've been walking through, we're not going to do all 30 to 50, right, we've got, we're going to go through 10. And so we're, we're in the midst of this conversation of storytellers. So if you've missed any, you can go back and listen wherever you get your podcast or if you go on YouTube, um, and I would encourage you to continue along with us as we round out this conversation over the next few weeks. But here's, here's where we're going to go today. We're going to go to Luke 14. And we're going to start right in the middle. Verses 25 and 26 is where we're going to start. So, again, verses will be on the screen for you. If you would like to follow along on your phone or tablet or whatever, you can scan that QR code there. It'll take you to our follow-along page, or it's on the back of your Next Steps card. You can do that as well. I would encourage you to follow along there. And something I'm going to do a little different today is... I usually will kind of pause and like we'll go through our passage and I'll pause. I'm going to read the whole passage first with only one pause to start, and then we'll go back through everything. So here's where we're going to go. Luke 14, starting in verses 25 and 26, this is what it says. A large group was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, okay, here's the one pause. This is different. This is different. Normally when we get to Jesus teaching parables, we've got people already seated, already ready to listen. This is different. He's got people following him. And we know that this is a point minister. I mean, he's been around for a while. He's got a lot of people following him. They, he's been doing miracles. He's been calling followers. He's been interacting in different towns. People knew when he was coming close. People were paying attention to him, and people were following him everywhere he went. They wanted to be healed because they were sick. They wanted to hear the teaching. It was interesting. It was different than what they were hearing other times. Some people were following him, trying to figure out if he's good or bad. Like He, he had a lot of people following him. And so in the midst of that, this isn't a situation where he goes, okay, everybody sit down, I'm going to teach you something. In the midst of people just following him, he goes, stop. I got to tell you something. And he just turns around. And this is what he says. If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise you cannot be my disciple. goes on in verse 27. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Verse 28. But don't begin until you count the cost, for who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there is enough money to finish it? 29 and 30. Otherwise, you might complete, complete only the foundation before running out of money. And then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Verse 31. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors and discussing whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, He will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. Verse 33, so you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. 34, 35, salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Anyone who has ears to hear should listen and understand. So you get this, right? He, he stops and he says, if you want to follow, and he makes some pretty bold statements we're going to go through, but he says, you got to think about what you're doing. You think this is fun. You're following me. I give you snacks sometimes when there's no food, right? I heal people that have had, been sick for a long time. I tell good stories. I, tell good, I have teaching that you like to hear. I have teaching that some of you don't like to hear. But he's like, I do a lot of things, and you're interested right now. He goes, you need to stop and think about whether you're still going to be interested later. This isn't how it's going to be forever. And the place that he was eventually going to go, which he alludes to in this conversation, he goes, you're not going to want to follow me there. And he knows, obviously, as we know on this side of this conversation, that he wasn't always going to be around. It wasn't as though the people that are following him are simply going to be able to live out the rest of their days following him. They had to understand things were going to change; they were going to be different. And he stops them now and he says, "Listen, you need to think about what you're doing because what you're doing is not going to be the same today as it w- as it will be forever. It's going to be different." And so he goes to these four things, I'm going to lay out the four things, and then again, we'll go back through and and list them out. He says, first of all, you have to hate your family. Second of all, you have to bear your cross. Third of all, you have to count the cost. And fourth, you have to give up your stuff. So let's go back and go one by one and say, okay, what does this mean? Because if you're listening to this for the first time, you're not a follower of Jesus, I just said, hate your family. And you're already thinking, maybe I just shouldn't listen to this guy. This is not sounding like a good conversation. So let's go back to verse 26 and start at the beginning, okay? if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, important part of that conversation, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Now, let's pause. That by comparison comment is very important. Also, we have to understand, when Jesus is using this word hate, it's not like we use the word hate. If we use the word hate, We are saying, I want nothing to do with the thing I hate. You may have ordered something at a restaurant one time and you said, I hated that. I will never eat that ever again. You might have booked an airline one time and you went through that experience and you said, I now hate that airline. I will never book with them again. There are certain teams. You will not wear their stuff because you hate them. You won't be caught dead in something that is their colors, right? You, you, we have this understanding of when we use the word hate, we say, I will never. That's not what Jesus is saying. How do we know that? Because that's not what he says elsewhere. One of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. He doesn't say hate your father and mother, right? So we understand. We look at the whole of Scripture. He's not saying that we literally have nothing to do with our family anymore. But what he is saying is, by comparison, Jesus is up here. Everything else is here. He's saying, I got to go to a new stratosphere for you. I have to become the most important thing. He goes, your father and your mother, your wife and children, brothers and sisters. He says, and this is where it gets key. He goes, even your own life. So he's not singling out and just saying, oh, by the way, all the people that are in your family, you have to hate. He's going, no, your life ranks here too. I'm up here. So again, first thing he does, stop. Here's what you have to understand. If you're going to follow me, I'm up here. You're down here. That's the first ground rule. So we got to know. Now, why would Jesus start there? Why would that be the place where he starts to have this conversation? We get, okay, cost of discipleship. First thing is hate your family. Here's why. There's two things, I think. First of all, family can become an idol. It can. We don't think about it that way a lot, but family can become an idol. I've known people, and I will, I'm will. i sure I will continue to know people that, and have conversation with people. But I went to school with guys that were going into ministry their family would look at them and go, why are you doing that? You're, you're so good at math. Why don't you go be an engineer? You're so good at this. Why don't you go do that? Why would you go into ministry? I knew people that looked at me. when I, Not my family. My family was all on board with it, everyone close to me. But I had friends, parents, who would say to me, are you sure that's what you want to do? Now, some of it, maybe they were kind of having this conversation like, Jesus is having, are you sure that's what you? But like, it was the conversation of, are you really, that's really what you want to do? There's times where we crave and need the the approval of our parents. It's what we were built to receive. And when our parents look at us and they say, I want nothing to do with what you're doing with your life, that's a that's a deep blow. There's a speaker that comes to momentum every once in a while. His name's Afshin Ziafat. And he grew up, he was from the Middle East, but he came to Texas, and that's where he grew up, and he grew up Muslim. And then in, I think it was like second or third grade, he had a teacher that gave him a Bible, and he started to read. And as a high school student, he actually became a follower of Jesus. And his dad said, I have no son anymore. Now, his dad was Muslim. He said, if you're not Muslim, you're not going to be my son. We would look at that in some ways and say, well, that's their problem. That's wrong for them. But... This happens not just with Muslim families, but with anybody who just doesn't understand what it is to follow Jesus. I'm sure if we went around, there are people with family members in here that you've had that conversation, and you've had to decide, am I going to choose what's right and follow Jesus, or am I going to be okay with my siblings, or am I going to be okay with my parents? And these are the, this makes sense. These are the closest relationships we have. And Jesus is saying there's going to be times where either parents or, or siblings or whoever is going to come in and say, I don't understand what you're doing. And the temptation for us is going to be, I want the approval. I don't want the drama. I don't want the rift or whatever. And, and we're not saying make it unnecessarily. But there's times we're going to have to say, Jesus is up here. Everybody else's opinion is here. And when we choose it, if we choose what our family says over what Jesus says, we're making them an idol, right? We're, we're deciding to to appeal to them rather than to Jesus. So we've got to think about it. But here's, here's the other side of that coin, because that can get taken too far. The other side of that coin is this, that Jesus won't call us to something that harms our family. So I've also heard this verse used wrongly in ministry context, where, where someone in ministry will actually leverage it to say, I have to pursue Jesus rather than my family. And the rest of my family just has to kind of suck it up and get over it. And that's not what Jesus is saying either. And there's actually a famous example. There's a guy named John Wesley. Maybe some of you have heard of him before. If you've heard of a Wesleyan church, you've heard of John Wesley. Very famous uh, preacher from the UK back in the, the 18th century. But you know what? In later years, like he, I mean, he was known super well. He was baptizing people. He was preaching to thousands of people. People were getting saved, all kinds of stuff. And then later in life, what came out and in biographies of him, what we've realized is his marriage was awful. And he did not care one bit what his wife thought about what he was doing. And actually, when she they had an on-again, off-again relationship, back and forth and kind of whatever happened. And then eventually, she said, I've had enough. I'm leaving. And this is what John Wesley said after she left. He said, finally, she left for good. I do not forsake her. I do not dismiss her. I will not recall her. He said, I'm going to choose to pursue Jesus and leave my family in the dust. So when Jesus says, hate your family, we have to understand. He's not saying hate like we understand and we're never going to have anything to do with them again. But he is saying, Jesus has to come up here. But here's what we know from Paul, right? When we are pursuing Jesus up here and everybody else falls here, we love our family as though we're loving Jesus. And there's this circular conversation that happens where we go, I'm going to follow Jesus. That means I love everyone else in my family as Jesus. But sometimes that means in difficult situations, when my parents don't approve of my pursuits of Jesus or my siblings don't get it or my extended family doesn't get it, I have to choose him rather than choosing them. And I cannot allow my family to become an idol. And so Jesus sets the bar with the first thing and says, if you're following me, I'm up here. Everybody else is down here. He goes on in verse 27. He says, if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. So, second thing, right? We've got to just to recap hate your family, bear your cross. Now, this is interesting because when we read this, we already know the end of the story. We already know Jesus is going to go to the cross. That is not a surprise to us, it was for them. They hear the word cross and they think, oh, right, what the Romans are doing to people that I know. Or those criminals I see on the side of the road, they're being crucified. Like, they're, they've seen this. This is, not, this is not strange. And when he says, bear your cross, like, they've seen people have to carry their cross to their own death. And Jesus says, if you don't carry your cross, then you can't be my disciple. The word, I, like, I don't want to gloss over this. It's you cannot Not, you're not a good one. You cannot. And when someone was bearing a cross in this context, they were carrying their own death sentence. So let me put this a different way, just so it sinks in. Jesus is saying, if you don't pick up your own death sentence for my sake, you can't follow me. He's really trying to weed people out, isn't he? So he says, you, you have to bear your cross. You have to know what this means. You have to understand this is picking up your death sentence. And here's what I want us to get about this. Every follower of Jesus will bear a cross, but not everyone's will be the same. Now, there's some similarities. We all have to pursue Jesus. We all have the calling to make disciples. We all have that calling to follow him in the ways that he says follow. But some of us are going to bear different weights. Some of us, our parents are going to look at us and say, why are you following this Jesus? It makes no sense. Some of us are going to grow up in families where all of our family already knows Jesus, and they rally around, and they're all for it. Some of us are going to have to deal with ailments that just continue over and over and over and over again, and we don't know how to fix it, and it just continues in our life. We're going to have to bear that cross. Some of us bear a cross of just anxiety. And depression like it, there's different things that we're all gonna have to deal with and it would be easier to look at God and say I want nothing to do with this anymore but Jesus says this life's not gonna be easy this isn't something that's simple and we're all gonna have to bear something but it might not all be the same and this is where we kind of look at each other sometimes I think and we look at somebody else's cross and we go man that cross is easier than mine why do they only have that one and I have this one, right? And, and so we, get, we can get stuck in this, like, comparison of life is easier for them or it's different for them or they're better off or whatever. God doesn't like me more than he doesn't like or something weird, right? We, we get stuck in the space of that seems better to me than mine. But in the end, it's, it's all the same. It's just people who have different things that they deal with. And so he says, you've got to bear your cross or you cannot be my disciple. Going on in verse, back to verse 28, it says, But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Verse 29 and 30, Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Verse 31. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him. So ready for the recap? Hate your family. Bear your cross. Count your cost. This is so important. Jesus says that this is going to cost you something. This isn't just live on my coattails for a while. I'm going to give you snacks. I'm going to heal you when you're sick. And we're just going to ride off into the sunset after I take down Rome. This is not the idea of, of what being a follower of Jesus is. He says, it's going to cost you. I'm not sure I understand. Thanks, Siri. It's going to cost you. This happens when I practice, too. Every once in a while, I say something, I guess, that sounds like this. And then all of a sudden, she starts recording everything. And then she's like, I'm confused. Yeah, because just listen to my teaching instead of talk to me. Okay. So, because it's going to cost you something. This isn't simple. This isn't going to cost you nothing. You should literally sit down. He says, literally sit down. Think about what this is going to cost you. Think about it. Write up the receipt. Go, if I'm going to follow Jesus, this is what it has to look like. Listen, we have not done a good job of this. And when I say we, I mean pastors. We have not done a good job of this historically. We will get to moments in services where things feel good and we'll get to, like, youth events and things like that, camps and all that, retreats and whatever. And we, at that moment of, like, everything's been culminating, we figure it out. We go, do you want Jesus? All you have to do is this. And it's true. We're going to get there. It's true. All you have to do is accept Jesus to get eternal life. But Jesus was the one to turn around and say, you better think about what you're doing before you do it. It's heavy. And the reason I say we've done a poor job of it is because people will, I'm not picking on any certain person, but I'm just saying, people will just have a conversation where someone raised a hand, count that hand, and then send out an email and go, look how many people accepted Jesus. And then we never have any follow-up or understand what's that going to cost you. What does being a disciple mean? And I'll just be honest, as a pastor, that's hard. Like it's hard to like, at some point you have to lean into the Holy Spirit and go, what's he doing in their life? All that stuff. But we have to have this conversation. And so as we sit here, many of us here are followers of Jesus. Maybe we're not followers of Jesus. Like this is the conversation. What does it actually cost to follow Jesus? And here's what I know to be true. It's bad when we aren't prepared for the unexpected, but it's worse When the expected comes and we are unprepared. Let me give you an example. When a tornado shows up, no one says, man, why didn't you prepare for that? Because maybe you get a warning, maybe the hour, but maybe it was like there's a hurricane watch or one. I forget which one's which, right? There's bad things coming. Okay, but you've got like maybe hours to figure that out. It's worse when someone says there's a hurricane coming in a week and you don't prepare. You had time. Like, you've got to figure this out. So when the unexpected comes and you're not prepared, that's bad. But when the expected comes and you're unprepared, that's way worse. And Jesus is saying, this is coming. There's a cost associated with this, and you need to be ready for it. And what I think is true is we too many times go, I want to follow Jesus, and then we don't count the cost. And when things get difficult, we walk away. And this is why I think, okay, if there's someone who's like deconstructing, listening or into the room or whatever, I'm not being a jerk to you, but here's what I think is true. What does Jesus say? He says, when we start to build, he says, people will laugh at the person who builds the foundation and can't finish the job. And here's what I know. People that I know and listen to who walk away from Jesus, it's not because of Jesus. They always blame a church or a leader, or something like that, a parent, or a teacher, and yes, church hurt is real, and all that stuff is real, but here's why. They never blame Jesus. They blame someone else because they're embarrassed because they started the foundation and didn't count the cost, and now they're walking away, and they don't want to be the ones responsible to say, I'm the one who didn't realize what this was going to cost, and I'm just going to walk away from it, so they look at somebody else and say, it's their problem. It's their fault because they don't want to be the one who's laughed at with being left with a foundation and and then deciding not to follow Jesus anymore. So Jesus says, you got to think about what this receipt's going to look like before you take it on. And don't don't think that you can chase after me and ride my coattails if you're not ready for that cost to come down. I was reading a book last week. It It was a book about financials, but there was a bunch of different ideas in it. And one of the things they talked about was people that, do estimates for when you like put an addition on your house. And so, you know, like you see somebody in your neighborhood or something, and all of a sudden one day they've got construction workers out there. What do you want to know? You want to be nosy. You want to go over and knock on the door. What are you having done, right? The conversation like, oh, we're having this addition put on. And we've got this going on. We're fixing up this bathroom or whatever. And maybe you start to have conversation about what they quoted or how much it costs or whatever. And in this book, there was a quote from a Harvard professor that did a study on people and their estimates of how much things are going to cost and this is what he found out he said when it comes to friends home renovation projects most people estimate the cost will run 25 to 50 percent over budget he says when it comes to our projects however they will be completed on time and near the projected costs so when when, the the tendency was when i look at somebody else and they go oh yeah they say it's going to take three months and it's going to cost 10 grand they think oh no no this is going to take six months and cost 15 grand They're never going to be able to do it in that amount of time. But if it's your project, it's like, oh, no, no. They're going to be right on time and not go a penny over budget. Question is, do we do the same thing with following Jesus? We look at other people and we go, man, if they're really going to follow Jesus, they need to give up that habit or they need to do this differently or they need to show up there differently. But we look at our own lives and go, I'm pretty well on the path already. I don't really have to worry about anything. I don't really have to get into what I need to give up or what it's going to cost me. They have a lot more work to do than I do. I think we've all been there. Yes, this is about home renovations, but I think the attitude is the same. We think this way about what it's going to cost us. Here's the last thing he says of the four things. Verse 33. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. So he says, hate your family, bear your cross, count your costs, give up your stuff. Now, is Jesus saying, go home, sell all your stuff and give it all away and give all the money to whoever? No, it's not the answer. We still need the things we have. But again, think back to number one. Jesus is here. Everybody else's opinion's here. So what does that mean? Jesus is here. All my other stuff is here. So when he shows up and says, I need this from you, what does that mean to you? There are certain things that Jesus might show up and say, you can't do X anymore. And we'd be like, all right, I was kind of done with that anyway. There's other things Jesus might show up and say, I need you to stop doing that. You're like, no, 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 no. That's me. Like, that's part of who I am. I I can't give that up. You know, I would say it this way, and I'll kind of explain what I mean. Something we already counted as a loss doesn't hurt so bad when it's gone. So I've been in a lot of situations where I've been on a lot of teams or I've coached a lot of teams, and there are games you go into, and you kind of just talk to yourself beforehand, and you're like, we're probably going to lose this one. Now, when I'm a coach, I never say that to my players. When I'm a coach, I'm like anybody can win any day, let's go get them. But in the back of my brain, I'm like, I just hope we don't get killed. That's kind of where I'm at. Why? Because I'm protecting myself, whether I'm a player or a coach in that situation, where I'm like, okay, if we lose, it's not that big a deal. I already thought we were going to lose, kind of expected it. It just happens. Product of being a Philadelphia sports fan. It just happens. We just expect it. But Then if we win, it's like, that was amazing, right? Never thought we'd win that game. That was incredible. But we think about it and we kind of gauge ourselves and we go, okay, I lost that. I'm not heartbroken because I didn't think we were going to. Anyway, here's a different example. I've, I've not done this, but I've heard of other people doing this where like the Powerball gets up to like, I don't know, $6 billion. And people at work will start to like pool and be like, hey, let's just all buy a ticket. And then if we win, we'll all split it. Because at that point, even if they don't normally play it, They're like, it's worth, I don't know how much Powerball, $10, $5, I don't know. But like they put that in, they're like, ah, if I lose that amount of money, whatever. If we win, great. We're not going to win, but whatever. It gets real weird if somebody comes in the conversation and goes, no, we're winning. God told me we're going to win this money. And everybody else is kind of like, this isn't a good idea anymore. Because now there's this stipulation of like, now you expect it, or somebody thinks it's going to happen, and it's a long shot, and it's not a great idea, and maybe we shouldn't do this anymore. But here's how we think about this with Jesus. If we already expect it as a loss, or or it's not as valuable, or it's not as important, and Jesus comes up and says, hey, I need this from you, or I'm going to take this from you, or this isn't on the table anymore, and we go, oh, I already counted that as a loss. I don't need it. You can have it. It's a different conversation. When we're in a space where we go, I can't live without this thing, and Jesus comes along and says, that's not healthy for you anymore then it's a kicking and screaming contest trying to figure out how I'm going to get rid of it. By the way, this is true of our sexuality. This is true of our hobbies. This is true of our work. This is true of our families. This is true of physical people. Like, this is true of all of it. We have to be willing to say, Jesus knows what it takes. Jesus knows what I need and don't need. And when he shows up and says something's off the table... It's off the table. he says, if you give everything up, if everything is a loss compared to following Jesus, when it goes away, it doesn't matter anymore. And that's the attitude we have because following Jesus is more important than other things. So he rounds out the conversation in verses 34 and 35. He says, salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Anyone anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Here's the interesting thing about this part of the conversation to me. There's people that are salt that lose their saltiness. Go back to the foundation conversation. There's people that start on this path and don't finish it. It shouldn't shock us when people walk away from Jesus, but Jesus says there's people that seemed like they were on this path But they really weren't. They seemed like they were salt. They seemed like they were building that foundation. They seemed like they were chasing Jesus. And they don't. Because the cost was too high. And life happens and and God says, that person's not a part of your life anymore. You're unable to do that job anymore. You're not going to be able to pursue that passion anymore. And we say, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't know it was going to cost this. But when we go back to bearing cross, right, we, we go, but Jesus said, pick up your death sentence for me. Like you're going you yourself have to die to me. That means everything else with it. And he looks at the people following him and says, this is what it takes. Like th- this isn't just a joy ride. This is going to get really, really difficult. So when we hear this, especially with the salt, that, that leads us to a, like a question and conversation. It's like, so what does that mean? How do you start on the path and you're not able to finish? How do you seem like you're following Jesus and then you're not? Like, how does, how does that happen? I want, to, I want to use an analogy to kind of help us understand. Here's what I want us to get. The gift of salvation is free, but the reality of salvation in your life will take its toll. The gift of salvation is free, but the reality of salvation in your life will take its toll. Let me give you kind of a silly example, but I think it's going to work, okay? About a year ago, Becca and I started having a conversation about getting another dog. We already have a chocolate lab named Sully. He's massive, 90 pounds. He is a monster, okay? He ate my donut off the island this morning, like in 30 seconds. I left it there, gone. He's so fat. Anyway, so, but we, we move on and we, like, Becca's like, I want a smaller dog that is not 90 pounds and can't eat all our food. So, we start to have that conversation. What does that mean, blah. We have a neighbor that lives around the corner from us. Her name's Bonnie. And she had two dogs that were the right size and everything, and they were part Cavalier, which is the type of dog Becca's mom bred for a while, so she really liked them. So she goes to Bonnie and says, how, like, can we have a, where did you get your dog? And we start down that path. Bonnie says, well, the parents of these two dogs just had more puppies, and they weren't planning to, so it's kind of a surprise to them. So they've got more puppies that they need to find families for. So we're like, okay, great. So we start having that conversation. Becca calls the person, has the conversation. How much are the puppies? The puppies are free. And I was like, that is our price range, right? That sounds great. So some of you who've been to our house in the last year, you've met Lucy. She's this tiny little. I mean, when we got her, she was like this big. I mean, she couldn't reach the water. Dish. She was so little when we got her. So we go visit. We pick out Lucy. We wait two weeks. We go back. We bring her home, okay? Listen, she didn't cost us a dime, But if you ask me today how much Lucy has cost us, she has cost us something, okay? Now, we know this. I promise you, we didn't pay that person a dime to have this puppy. But we also didn't bring Lucy home and just stick her in a corner somewhere and go, okay, you're on your own. Then what would happen? Lucy would not survive. So Lucy took food. We had to care for her. We had to make sure she has what she needs, we had to get her the collar so she could be in the outdoor out, uh, outside the invisible fence. Like there, there's different things, right? That that we have to put money into continuing to have this puppy because she needs to be cared for. Now listen, I said this is a silly example, but go there with me for a minute. Sometimes we treat the gospel like a puppy we just bring home for free and then leave in a corner somewhere and expect it to continue living on its own. Hear me, I'm not saying that we do anything to keep the gospel alive, but what I am saying is when we stick it in a corner and all of a sudden the gospel eats our shoes and we want nothing to do with it anymore, we can't just throw it out, but we do. And we think, oh, this is the free gift of salvation. This is great. It's not going to cost me anything. It is free. Once you're saved, you're always saved. All of that is true. But if we're not willing to count the cost of following Jesus, we didn't have it in the first place. So we can't just bring it home, leave it on the side and say, the gospel's going to live on in my life. It's going to continue to have an impact. I'm going to continue to get the whatever. No, it's something that takes our time and our energy and our resources. Listen, we, when we think about the commitments we have in our life, we have to think about It's going to cost us the time and energy and the resources and the influence in order to continue having that interest. Whether it's a relationship with somebody, it's a hobby we're doing, it's a job, like all of it. But when we follow Jesus, we don't think that's the case. We go, oh yeah, I follow Jesus. Maybe I'll show up in these spaces. Maybe I'll show up on Sunday. Maybe I'll do this over here. Maybe I'll serve in the... Like, we think, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe. But everything else, we're like, oh, no, I'll commit to it. But when we follow Jesus, it's like, that's not really that commitment. I want Jesus. I want that relationship because I want the benefits of it, but I'm not willing to count the cost. We miss it. This is what I'm saying. Like The last thing I want is for us to walk away from Jesus and go, I didn't count the cost, so I'm not following anymore. And our goal at GFC is to establish every person on the foundation of Jesus. But that also means we're going to introduce you to Jesus. We're going to give you all the avenues to pursue Jesus and discipleship and what that means. But here's the thing. You have to be willing to do it too. And that's not just me. That's Jesus. He's looking at the people following him and going, this is what it's going to cost. This is what it looks like. And yet too many times we say, just going to bring it home, put it over here doesn't cost me anything. It's not the way the gospel works. It is free to receive salvation. Hear me. I want to be so stinking clear on this. It is so free to receive salvation. And once you are saved, you are always saved. But the reality of the gospel in our lives will take its toll on us. And if it doesn't, we have not received Jesus. That's the reality of what Jesus is teaching. That's the truth. But here's the really good thing. Matthew 16 verses 28 to 29 says this, Jesus replied, I assure you that when the world is made new, everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life direct correlation from that verse to the verses we just talked about, isn't it? Talks about family, talks about property, talks about children. I mean, it's, it's everything we just talked about. And notice what he says. We'll receive a hundred times as much in return and eternal life. He says, when you give stuff up for me, he doesn't say, and it's just gone forever, done. He says, I will repay you hundred times over and you'll still get eternal life the question is do we think that's worth it or would we rather be in a space where we say I want what I want now and I don't believe that he's going to show up later that's the faith part right that's where on this side of heaven we have to say "I, I trust that Jesus is going to give me what he says he's going to give me and eternal life is a part of that so here's how I want to round out the conversation before the band comes back up. I think at times there are certain things in life where we say, if Jesus takes X from me, I'm out. Because there's, there's those things with us, even in relationships with people. If that person ever does this to me or this person ever says that to me or this person ever does that again – I'm out, I'm not doing anymore. And sometimes I can be healthy, build boundaries and all that stuff. But there are certain things, I think, where we, whether consciously or not, we will think about God and we'll go, if you take that thing from me, if you take that person from me, I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore. And if that's the case, we're missing it. Because that's what Jesus says we're called to do, is to say anything is on the table. So here's the sentence. I want us to think about this. Jesus isn't worth blank to me. What would be the fill in the blank for you? Jesus isn't worth if he takes my kids from me, I'm out. Whatever that means. Jesus isn't worth, worth if I have to give up my sexuality to, be, to, re, to reflect what God says my sexuality would be. I'm out. Jesus says I have to not pursue that passion anymore. I'm out. What is it? And if there's something that you know is filling in that blank, you've got to have a conversation with Jesus about it and say, Jesus, how do I get to the place where if you took that thing, I'm still following you because you're here. People, possessions, whatever's on the table, already down here. So it doesn't matter to me what you take. The cost is fine. I'm going to follow you no matter what. Let me pray for you this morning. Jesus, I'm grateful, even though this teaching is difficult, that it is so uh, abundantly clear. It's hard for us to understand when we maybe raise our hand as a (laughs) six-year-old what it's going to mean to follow you. We don't know how to count the cost really in those moments, and yet you say, with a childlike faith, we can follow you. But as life goes on, we, we step into arenas and situations and things where the cost becomes abundantly clear. And God, I, I pray that as we process this, we would understand that following you has a cost to it. it. It's not as simple as just riding your coattails and getting all the benefits of knowing you and and... There's no impact on our days. And God, I pray if there are those of us who, who know something that's in this blank, that we would say, if, if you took this from us, we're out. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts in that. And, and sometimes it's a dangerous feeling to say, God, you can have everything because we're terrified that that's what you'll actually take. But I pray that Matthew's words would sink in deep when he recorded you are saying you will repay us for the things we give up and we will inherit eternal life and i pray that if there are those of us in the room or listening online whenever that we have not actually decided to follow you we we've started to build the foundation we've started to look like salt but we have not actually turned our lives over to you i pray that that would be the case that we would decide today, Jesus, you're worth all of it. And I've counted the cost. And I'm going to pursue you no matter what. And God, if there is that person here that goes, I have not counted the cost and I need to, and I need to actually make that decision now. I want to give them the opportunity to make that decision. So if that's you, you're here in the room, you're listening online, wherever you are. And after this conversation, you've just gone, you know, I didn't really count the cost. I didn't really decide to follow Jesus. I just wanted all the benefits. But I want to decide to actually follow him today after counting the cost. Would you just repeat this prayer silently after me? Jesus, I know what it's going to cost. I believe that you died in my place, that you rose again, and that if I trust you, I'll have the eternal life you promise. And no matter what, no matter what it costs, I'm gonna follow you for the rest of my life. If you prayed that for the first time or the first time and you meant it, it's yours, but guess what? It's gonna cost you. And we would love to be a part of counting that cost with you, alongside of you understanding what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. God, I pray that you would just renew a sense of understanding in us of what that costs and we would be willing to pay it. In Jesus' name, amen.